Hello again. Now that we've all met, let's take a trip together. We start in Sverdlovsk at what was UPI, the Ural Polytechnic Institute, in dorm room 531, in the middle of what Zena describes in the group journal as an artistic mess. Nine young hikers anticipate adventure for their winter break. They frantically pack and carefully discard anything which is unnecessary. They divvy responsibilities among the group. Yuri Yudin is responsible for the medicine. Lyuda is responsible for the money. One friend, Nikolai Popov, missed his train and won't make the trip. Only Igor knows that Zletarov will meet them at the train station and make their number 10 again. The boys swear not to smoke the entire trip. Zena scoffs at this, and shortly before closing the journal writes, I wonder what awaits us this trip. What will be new? There's so much excitement in the room that they fill it with songs and don't make it to sleep until 3 a.m. The hikers begin slowly the next morning and have to run to catch the train while carrying all of their gear. Once on the train car, they run into Yuri Blinov, who's also leading a group on a trek. They travel together all the way to Vijay. January 24th. The hikers arrive by train at Serov, 201 miles away. The train gets in around 7 a.m. and they're faced with a 12-hour layover. It's too early, so they're not allowed to wait in the station. Georgie breaks out the mandolin to pass the time, and this is the moment that he is rounded up by the authorities. He is later released without fines. The group knocks on the door of the local school, known only as number 41. They trade a place to sleep for the responsibility of teaching the children about ski tourism in the afternoon session. The kids immediately fall in love with Zletarov for his singing, and Zena, well, for being Zena. <laughs> the students get special permission from their teachers and escort the hikers to their train, which departs for Ivdel at 6.30 p.m. There is more trouble at the train station when a young alcoholic accuses them of stealing his wallet, and the police are back again, but the group gladly makes their way on. On the train, there is much talk of love, singing, and Liuda hiding under the seat. Later, the students from school number 41 would write UPI asking about the hikers' whereabouts. No one knew what to tell them, so no one ever did respond. January 25th. After five and a half hours, the hikers arrive in Ivdel just after midnight. They find a large waiting room and stack their gear, taking turns keeping watch while the others sleep until their bus leaves for Vijay. The bus is terribly crowded and it is on this section of the trip that Alex gets left at a rest stop. The bus would not turn around, but hesitated long enough for him to run and catch up. One can only wonder what would have happened if he had missed the bus, or if it had turned around, or had they all gotten off to wait until the next day. But we cannot what if. The bus arrives at Vijay around 2 p.m. The Blinov group departs on their journey but the Dyatlov group stays the night at a rundown hotel. They sleep two to a bed, and two of them, Alex and Georgie, slept on the floor. Someone left the window open, and in the morning, it was freezing. Georgie notes the temperature is 17 below Celsius, which is about one degree Fahrenheit. January 26th. The group makes a plan to travel to the 41st Kvartal, a woodcutter camp. They find room in an open flatbed GAZ-63 truck. It is bitterly cold when they leave Vijay at 1.10 p.m. It is on this trip that Yuri Yudin's rheumatoid arthritis kicks in and his health fails. Perhaps the cold or the bouncing of the trailer does him in, 
but he is beginning to realize that he will not only fail to be an asset to the group, but he will hinder it. The Diatlov group is met with a warm welcome from the woodcutters. They are set up with a private room in the hostel and took six hours to cook dinner. Half of the group goes to see a movie, while the others, including Rustic, Nikki, and Georgie, stay behind to play music, chat, and prepare the gear for the next day. There's a strange journal entry by Nikki late on the 26th, which makes me think of the 1959 version of a frustratingly vague Facebook status update. He says, I can't, although I tried. This could be in regards to not smoking or anything else. January 27th, the group secures a horse and cart to carry their gear to the abandoned Seconds of Verney, a geologist camp. The cart is driven by a former convict, Stanislav Velinkiavichus, one of the many people exiled to Siberia for anti-Soviet activity. The group befriend and lovingly refer to him as Grandpa Slava. Thank goodness. <laughs> they outpace the horses and arrive early, but still after dark, only to find 20 houses unsuitable for living. There is another near the ice hole and they all stay there together, including Grandpa Slava. January 28th, Yuri Yudin, the geologist of the group, is very excited to have arrived at this camp and after breakfast he sets out with some of the other guys to collect minerals. Yudin later acknowledges that he cannot continue on with the group and turns around with Grandpa Slava to return the way they came. There's rumor that according to one interview with Yudin, it is at this moment that he sees Igor speaking with a local who appears to be advising him against the trip. Igor seems pissed, brushes the conversation aside, and begins leading the group on the first leg of their hike along the Lazva River. They set up camp at 5.30 p.m. January 29th. The entries are getting shorter, in the journal. I've been on hikes like this, but not. The one where I fell off the cliff started by taking a lot of pictures and enjoying the scenery, but I would say on this and every hike, there's a point where I wonder why this is what I choose to do for vacation. I search my memory for why I think this is fun, then have to stop thinking about it because all I have the capacity to deal with at this moment is surviving it. This begins to happen with the Diatlov group. There are less entries as they focus on the task at hand. They follow the Lazva River, then switch to the Ospia River bank. Doroshenko celebrates a birthday, and they give him a mandarin. He insists on splitting it and sharing it with a group. The only one who doesn't participate is Lyuda, who chooses to sulk in the tent. Nikki notes in the journal that they walk along a Mansi path. The Mansi are a local indigenous tribe. Quote, The weather is negative 13 degrees Celsius. The wind is weak. We often find ice on the Lazvi River. That is all. January 30th, the group rises and moves on early at 8.30 a.m. They continue along the Ospia River bank and make note of many Mansi etchings and trees along the way. From the journal, Mansi, Mansi, Mansi. This word is repeated more and more in our conversation. The weather is dropping to negative 26 degrees Celsius or about negative 15 Fahrenheit. The wind picks up and the snow begins to fall. Visibility is becoming minimal. They find it impossible to continue walking on the river, which is not frozen in some places and faces them with ice dams and others. They decide to look for solid ground and a place to set up their fire for warmth and sleep. January 31st. 
The group veers away from the Ospia River and chooses to follow a Mansi hunter trail in hopes that the going will be easier. They believe the deer hunter has passed recently and that they came upon his most recent camp last night. Their luck does not increase and the weather worsens. The wind is stronger and blowing snow from the trees. Visibility is very low and they move along at only one mile per hour. This is Igor writing. We are forced to find new methods of clearing the path for the skis. The first member leaves his bag on the ground and walks forward. Then he returns, rests for 10 to 15 minutes with the group. Thus we have a non-stop paving of the trail. It is especially hard for the second to move down the trail with full gear on the back. We gradually leave the Ospie Valley. The rise is continuous, but quite smooth. We spend a night at the forest boundary. Wind is western, warm, penetrating, snow-free spaces. We can't leave any of our provisions to ease the ascent to the mountain. Wind, some snow. Snow cover is 1.22 meters thick. Tired and exhausted, we start to prepare the platform for the tent. Firewood is not enough. We didn't dig a hole for a fire. Too tired for that. We had supper right in the tent. It is hard to imagine such a comfort somewhere on the ridge with a piercing wind hundreds kilometers away from human settlements. And that is the final entry in the diary. The following is the best recreation from evidence and photographs of the events of February 1st. The group wakes about 10 a.m. They spend about two hours making a cache of items for their return trip. The trek is so challenging that they take only what is necessary and leave everything else behind, including Georgie's mandolin. They spend at least an hour making a hot lunch before undertaking the trek for the day. They trudge along and the weather worsens. Elevation 880 is mislabeled and they miss their turn to take the pass between 1079 and 880. Darkness begins to fall early around 3 p.m. and the group knows that they have lost their way. For whatever reason, they decide to set up camp on the slope rather than retreating to the forest. They dig their way into the slope on elevation 1079 around 4 p.m. The hikers start dinner between 6 and 7 p.m. And here we are. There are still unfinished meals in the process of being made and food in their stomachs when they are found. This is the moment that something happens. This is where our story begins. Then what? I promise to start exploring what happened to make the hikers cut from their tent. And we start with the first suspects in the case, the local tribe of the Mansi. But first, let's recap how the hikers were found. We have Igor, the leader, Zena, the leading lady, Doroshenko, the ex-boyfriend, Georgie, the merry minstrel, and Rustic, the decent, all found in the early days of the search with their cause of death deemed as hypothermia. Georgie and Doroshenko had been found huddled together near the fire pit under the cedar tree about a mile downhill from the tent. They were nearly naked and had burns on their hands and feet, suggesting they may have thrust them directly into the fire in an attempt to get warm. It appeared that Igor, Rustic, and Zena had been attempting to make their way from the tree back to the tent when they had succumbed to the cold. The other four were found months later in a nearby ravine, near but not on a pallet-type bed they had made for themselves. Alex, the metallurgist, had possibly survived the longest, but eventually also died of hypothermia. 
Nikki the Frenchman had a crushed skull. Sasha the soldier and Luda the good communist had both died of crushed ribs. I didn't mention this last time, but now that we're getting into some more of the details, I should also mention that these two were both missing their eyes. And as I did say before, Liuda was missing her tongue. The coroner likened the internal injuries to the effect of being hit by a car. Though I think we can rule that out as one of the potential theories of what really happened in the wilderness on the edge of Siberia. It's all tragic and a bit gruesome, but it's time to look beyond the bodies to the questions. Let's look at some of the other things which investigators found, or didn't find, in the air of the incident. I've already mentioned that the tent had been cut open from the inside. There were tracks leading down toward the forest which separated, then came back together near the cedar tree. It's important to note that these tracks were all determined to belong to the hikers themselves. There were only nine sets of tracks, and none belonging to anyone or anything that would have been chasing them on foot. There were no other human or animal tracks in the area. The tree branches had been broken up to about five feet and skin was discovered on the bark, implying that someone had climbed and torn at the tree. None of these branches were in the fire pit. Also, nothing was stolen from the tent. All of their belongings were accounted for by Yuri Yudin when he was brought to the site and asked to identify each item and assign it to the hiker who had packed it. He was able to connect almost every item with the hiker who it belonged to, but stated that he found something he believes belonged to none of the hikers, but was part of a military uniform. The lead investigator, Lev Ivanov, brought a Geiger counter to the scene and noted higher than normal levels of radiation. Can we also acknowledge it's pretty weird to take a Geiger counter out to the mountains or to any investigation for that matter? There were higher than normal radioactive readings on two pieces of the hikers' clothing. One member of the coroner's team is quoted as saying, I remember clearly when the clothes were removed from the bodies and hung on the ropes, all of us immediately noticed that the clothes had a very strange light violet hue, although the articles of clothing were of different color. Other hikers just south of the Dyatlov group around the time of the incident have gone on record about having seen glowing orbs in the sky above the mountain range in the direction of the Dyatlov group. Some people who attended the funeral claimed that the hikers had a dark orange tan and appeared to have aged overnight, including their hair having turned gray. I think this is enough to start with as we begin hypothesizing along with the investigators and fanatics alike. Stick with me here because I'm going to attempt to put a few things together and see if they stick. The first suspects in the case, as I said, were the local tribesmen known as the Mansi. The Mansi are an indigenous nomadic tribe who live off the land in the Ural Mountains. I have a hard time imagining how this is possible in the middle of winter, but they seem to have figured it out. Not surprisingly, the mountains in that area bear Mansi names, but those names claim a whole new meaning now in light of the events on February 1st, 1959. The mountain where the Dyatlov group had set up camp and ultimately perished is known as Kalatsukal. Depending on who's doing the translating, this comes out to be either Dead Mountain or Mountain of the Dead. I'm not kidding. Add to that the mountain that was their destination, Mount O'Torton, which translates to Don't Go There. And this almost sounds like a joke. In fact, it is not. These names were born long before the members of the Dyatlov group and remain until this day. There are a couple of theories even regarding where the name Dead Mountain comes from. 
Some say that there is a history of the unlucky nine. Several stories supposedly exist regarding deaths on the mountain in the numbers of nine. Nine men dying in a flood. Nine hunters freezing in the snow. Boiling water, sinister flare, you name it. But you must number it nine. Others say that for the Mansi, the titles were purely logistical. Dead Mountain was dead because there was nothing living on it. And much like the lack of hunting and gathering available on Mount O'Torton, why would you go there? While we're at it, though, let's explore some other Mansi legends. Call no Yor, the king of demons, and Vornay, the patroness of the forest, reign over the Chistop mountain range. It is also said that there are invisible giants who can only be seen by children. So some Mansi hunters would take children along as watchers. Perhaps this giant is the host I've heard about. Or maybe that's a giant or giant. I don't know. The legend goes that when you're in close proximity to the host, you're subject to a slew of unpleasant experiences in mind and body known to the Mansi as Mayachit. I'm going to start using this in everyday conversation. Amber, what's wrong with you today? Mayachit. Ah, I see. People experiencing Mayachit are said to endure a myriad of unpleasant physical and mental sensations. They hear whistles, stamping of feet, shouts, and sounds so intense they vomit. According to the legend of the host, if you manage not to run, then the giant giant may show itself. So add to these legends the true story of three soldiers who stayed after the original D-Outlaw search party left, but were later discharged from the army and hospitalized for mental illness after fleeing the mountain and reporting that they had met themselves coming up the hill. And in 1939, an entire squad of 40 people are said to have disappeared in the mountain range when they went on a search for a fabled idol called the Golden Lady. One Mansi member of the Dyatlov search party is quoted as saying, the students somehow upset the spirits and they sought revenge. Since you can't talk to me right now, let me play you for a second. Amber, are you trying to tell us that you think these hikers died because the king and queen of the forest called on some invisible giants to chase the Dyatlov group down and do away with them? How did we get here? I don't know if I can listen to this anymore. Wait, 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 wait. Don't go. We're just getting started. I'm sorry. It was a bit of a tangent. But it's all pretty interesting, isn't it? And my question back to you is, can these creepy stories be explained outside of the supernatural and paranormal? So, here we go. Again, stick with me. Um, <laughs> and can that connection link us to some of the evidence and findings in the case? Because I think maybe. So fast forward to 1978. The Soviet Air Defense Command began building a radar site atop the mountain. They invested two years and plenty of funds laying roads and erecting a fort only to find that the site turns out to be sitting upon a huge electromagnetic pocket. The semiconductors for the radar site would immediately burn out. Copper and steel wires would turn to ash, and lightning flew out of the telephones. The signals would simply disappear and not reappear for days. The operation had no choice but to shut down. I've been looking into electromagnetism. One of the first bits of science which popped up is that the North Magnetic Pole is moving incredibly rapidly away from Canada and toward, you guessed it, Russia. This drift, if it continues, can cause compasses to need recalibrating and could potentially cause a complete flip of our current understanding of north and south. Since magnets do affect compasses, it is possible that this lends to the reason why the hikers were on Kalatsukal at all. 
It was not their original hiking plan, and people have assumed that the weather became bad, making visibility nearly impossible, and when they realized they had hiked a mile out of the way, instead of turning around, they set up camp on the hill in the open rather than trekking back down to the cover of the forest. Igor had made this same hike recently and was familiar with the area, and even without visibility, they had compasses, and those should have been showing them the way, unless... They were possibly pointing in the wrong direction, leaving the hikers blind. Relating electromagnetism to Myochit is also not too far-fetched. Our brains are largely electricity conductors, and there's a long history of magnets being used to affect human function, thought, and emotion. By directing a magnetic pulse to a particular area of the brain, it is possible to make specific body parts move, affect speech, activate or dull emotions and feelings, and affect decision-making. Electromagnetic shock therapy has historically been used to treat emotionally disturbed individuals and continues to be in practice today. One doctor even mentions that it is possible to briefly turn portions of the brain off altogether. There is rumor that the HAARP, H-A-A-R-P, facility in Alaska is experimenting with this on a large scale. HAARP stands for High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program. They are said to be using high-frequency sound waves to affect the ionosphere of an entire region. These effects are measured with magnetometers. The research being conducted is kept well under wraps, despite the massive landscape of the facility. Some conspiracy theories regarding the intention of the HARP program include controlling the weather, disabling satellites, and exerting mind control over entire populations. Another thing which popped up more times than I like to admit is way too many sites regarding the television show Lost and the time-space portal, which is the keystone of the show. Try it. Google electromagnetic pocket and see what happens. Not right this minute, obviously. We're just starting to get somewhere. <laughs> because if we're talking about science fiction, we do have to remember that the beginning is science. And Come to find out, there is such a thing as X-points. These are electron diffusion regions. This is where the electromagnetic field of the Earth meets the solar wind. When these two things cross, it creates a portal or a direct path between the two, which can open and close several times a day. So if we're talking about some of these fantastical legends of the Mansi people and connecting it to this electromagnetic pocket... Do we get some explanation lending more to science than fiction? Could a strong magnetic pulse have caused the hikers to experience dread, to feel and hear things they could not see or explain? Could it create lights like fireballs in the sky? Possibly. Now, a close comparison and cousin to legend is rumor. And there had been rumors in the past of the Mansi people having drowned a female geologist for trespassing on their holy ground. This appears to be no more than rumor, since I can find no actual documentation of this happening. But when people live differently than we do, and live in a closed group which they hold dear and sacred, it's easy for us outsiders to become suspicious. When the hikers were found on the Mansi land, many of the Mansi people were quickly rounded up and questioned by the authorities. They were accused of having slashed through the hikers' tents while they were sleeping and brutally murdering them for trespassing in their territory. These accusations came along with some isolation and torture, reportedly having taken them to a concentration camp, stripped them, and exposed them to the cold to try to get the Mansi people to agree with the story the investigators were proposing. 
The hiker's ski tracks from earlier in the trip did seem to be following some other tracks into the forest. It was assumed that these were the tracks of the Mansi hunter, who had become enraged with the hikers and taken revenge. While photos and journal entries from the hikers' possessions show that they were very clearly in Mansi territory, ultimately there was no evidence to support the claim that the Mansi people had caused them any harm. There were no extra footprints surrounding the tent. The land the hikers were found on was not considered sacred to the Mansi, but was quite the opposite. It was a barren place, which they avoided. So it was highly unlikely there were any Mansi people in that particular area at all. And when it was determined that the tent had been cut open from the inside by the hikers themselves, as opposed to an intruder from the outside, the interrogation was called to an end and the Mansi were released. There was no actual history of violence from the Mansi, but rather a very peaceful and helpful existence. A hard life with a short lifespan of about 50 years and a common history of alcoholism. A story of being forced off their land in isolated and decimated territories as their population decreases and their language fades away. Several Mansi people had joined the search party looking for the hikers on foot and with their hunting dogs who were responsible for some of the discoveries in the search. So going back to that rumored conversation that Yuri Yudin overheard, uh, there was the idea that the hikers had gotten into this heated argument with some Mansi men at one of their last stops before entering the wilderness. And some attributed this to anger over trespassing on their land, sparking rage and ending in their violent deaths. But what if it really was just a warning? What if it was more of a passionate plea of, don't go there? Next time, snow survival, death and dying, and avalanches on an unknown compelling force. (laughs) 